I'm just kidding. I'm, I, I, I got this. Um, so we're going to continue on a series. We started off several weeks ago, and it seems like almost forever now. But we're going to continue on by looking in the book of 1 Corinthians. And let's just recap, because it's been so long since we've actually been here, kind of where we've been at. So last time we were together, we actually looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, remember, when Paul... Um, is, is addressing uh, this aspect of the Corinthians. It's all about what satisfies our desires. Now, one of the things I've been trying to emphasize with the uh, book of 1 Corinthians is that what they are wrestling with back then, we are wrestling with today. So the answers that Paul, are going to, Paul is going to give them back then are ones that are going to be applicable to today as well, too. So one of the things we looked at was is this idea that the, the church in Corinth, for some reason, felt satisfied with their spiritual maturity. And so one of the things we talked about, again, I know if you, if perhaps you weren't there or perhaps it's been so long, but one of the things I said last time we were together looking at 1 Corinthians is that the thing that marks a true disciple of Jesus is spiritual hunger. And the idea behind that is that it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christ follower, you feel, think, believe that there's always something more. And that's actually essential to growth. So the only thing that's going to stop you from growing spiritually is if you feel like you've got nothing to grow into, right? And so we looked at the three stages of spiritual growth, right? We looked at baby, we looked at youth, and we looked at adult. And I said to you, these are the characteristics that mark these three developmental stages. But I did give you a kind of a surprise. There's a fourth stage. And the fourth stage was this idea of falling back in love with God. So one of the things that's interesting about the fourth stage is you could be a Christ follower for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40 years, again, whatever. And you could feel stagnant. You could feel like, you know, I'm, I'm faithful, I'm obedient, I do what I'm supposed to, but I'm just not, there isn't that aha moment. There isn't that fresh revelation of who God is. And that's where you have to kind of fall in love with God all over again. I think that's actually kind of interesting. So what we, what we saw last time is that Corinth was, is satisfied with what the world has to offer. And in this, they no longer grow or hunger for what God has for them. And we wrapped up by looking at this quote from A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer says this, most Christians are satisfied living as common Christians without an insatiable hunger for the deeper things of God. I think one of the characteristics that can really mark the Western church is its shallow faith, right? It is a mile wide, but it is like an inch, you know, or, you know, since we're Canadians, it's five centimeters deep, right? Actually, it's three and a half centimeters. But anyways, you get the idea, right? So the idea simply is, is that Western Christianity is, is staggeringly shallow because how we teach, how we preach, how we develop our programs, how we offer ourselves, i.e. like entertainment, high, um, uh, you know, high production values for all our stuff. This is good for attractional. This is good to bring in large crowds, but it is not good to create deep Christians who really hunger for something more. And again, that's just a generalization. I know because someone could say to me, well, I know. I'm like, again, that's fine, but I'm just saying in general. So there's four characteristics of the church in Corinth, and this is something I've said uh, consistently, but just to remind you, Corinth is sensual, and that's kind of where we're going to be sitting at this morning. Corinth is immature. We've seen that, and we're going to continue to see that. Corinth is struggling with transformation. The thing that is frustrating Paul the most is that when he was there, when he spent time with them, they haven't really progressed, and in some areas, they've really regressed. And finally, Corinth is trying to blend the gospel and culture. So a lot of times when Paul is trying to address them, Paul is going to try to help them understand that the kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdoms of this world. 
And that's actually another area that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, remember, in the Bible, when you see 1st and 2nd Corinthians, if you see a secondary letter to a church, it's kind of like Paul's saying, okay, apparently you didn't hear the first one, so here it is a second time, right? So this is how bad Corinth is, that they had to have another letter where Paul goes, okay, thank you for a fresh b- batch of controversies. Now let's deal with these as well, too, because you've kind of messed things up. So each time we come together, I try to give you a question to kind of ponder on, reflect on, to uh, kind of help us, guide us through. And if you're visiting this morning, uh, and I, as I warned last week, this one's a doozy, okay? This is, this is going to be a really difficult topic, uh, and, and so I'm going to spend a little bit extra time. I'm so grateful Marissa was able to kind of maybe, uh, you know, cut out one song, and the last song might be negotiable, depends on how long we go on in this. And the reason is... The reason simply is, is, this is a very deep topic, and as you're going to see here, it is probably the most divisive topic in Western Christianity today. Okay? So, just to let you know. So, the question I want you to think about, it was on our social media yesterday, our Instagram. By the way, follow us on Instagram. Um, the question is this. If you ask the wrong question, you will always get the wrong answer. So, <clears throat> whether it's in leadership development, whether it's in business, whether it's in life, whether in relationships... If you don't ask the right questions, you're not going to get the solution to whatever the problem is you're dealing with. And so what's going to happen here is this is really uh, endemic of Christianity today. So a lot of times what happens to me as a pastor is I will get people emailing me about Uptown Community Church. And the email will go something like this. What is your church's stance on? And they'll just give me a series of letters. And uh, like, that was interesting to me because I've been a pastor now for about 25 years, and I've been doing this for a lot uh, longer than that, and I know you're thinking to yourself, what, pastor, you only look like you're 30, and I appreciate you thinking that, but I'm not. Th- the point simply is, when I was earlier in my ministry, people would ask different questions of church. They would ask questions like, what denomination are you? What is your, uh, what, how, do you t- how do you approach worship? What's your Sunday school look like? What, like? These are all questions people used to ask. Well, I would say in the last... 10, 11 years, it's all gone to this one single question now. And the question is just simply, what's your church's stance on blah? And it's like, oh, okay. And I actually made a bit of a mistake with this question because I actually tried to answer the question, but I didn't answer the real question. I'm going to tell you what the real question is at the end. But uh, for now, we're just going to start off with this this conversation and ask ourselves this. Now, what you need to understand about what we're about to deal with, and I'm going to actually take almost two and a half chapters, and I'm going to condense them because this is an important topic, and Paul is going to mention this several times, and as opposed to having to deal with it every time, I'm just going to bring it into just one conversation. Paul is going to give us a biblical perspective on intimacy and relationships, and I want you to understand something. I'm going to deal with this topic, but I'm not going to deal with it, I'm hoping in a way that you've heard before, but I'm going to try to give you a different perspective on this so that you'll have uh, a a different way of, of examining it. But the second thing you need to understand, this is the part that people don't Christians don't understand about this topic, is Paul is also going to give us uh, boundaries for applying this paradigm as well. This is really important because a lot of people go, oh, okay, let's talk about the first one, but they get, no, no, actually, the second one's really important as well. Before we do that, let's jump into a couple of articles I want to show you, uh, share with you. So when you study this idea of the pleasure principle or pleasure in our culture, what you realize is our culture is very hedonistic. Now, when I say hedonism, hedonism can be kind of uh, broken down to Epicurus's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? What's interesting is, is that if you look at social media, if you look at how our culture shifted, and this is uh, not something recent, as in, i.e., the last couple of years, but it has been building. 
Like everybody thinks that they are uh, gourmet something or another, right? Like they have, you know, very sophisticated palates. Or people think they are very sophisticated in all these different areas, and that's fine, right? That's absolutely fine. But what's interesting is there's a lot more emphasis now placed upon this aspect of us. So I came across this article, uh, which, you know, kind of caught my attention because not one you think of, but it's what, what I love about this article by Peter Prevos was that it's actually honest. Because there's so many articles I could have shared for you about people um, uh, really living out their truths, living out their desires, living out whatever they believe the world should look like. That's their, that's their responsibility to, 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 and again, it came under ideas like self-love and all this. And again, these in themselves are not wrong things, but the way it was being, it's being portrayed, especially in several years now, is it's really, uh, it's become a higher priority. So this is what Peter said. Hellenistic ethical theory revolves around the notion of the most final good. This concept originates with Aristotle, who argues that if our pursuit of the good is to make sense, there must be a most final good, which he calls the goal or telos of living. Now, let me just unpack this. Now, the reason why this article caught attention for me is because what he does really aptly is he identifies the pursuit of pleasure, which is so evident in Western culture, with this idea that it's based upon Greek philosophy, which is what Roman culture was based upon. This is what the church in Corinth was wrestling with. And I think it's kind of fascinating that he kind of brings, and, I, and again, one of the reasons why I like this article is he actually makes a direct connection, and I go, yeah, actually, that's really, really good. He says this, Epicurus writes that he doesn't know how to conceive the good apart from the pleasures of taste, sexual pleasures, the pleasures of sound, and the pleasures of beautiful form, or Instagram, right? Um, or TikTok, or whatever it is, it might, it might be there, right? So what's interesting is, is what our culture has really, it's doubling down on, is that pleasure is how we define the best or the most or the final good. You've heard the phrase, if it doesn't hurt anybody, as long as consensual, what happens between two individuals, what I do to myself, what I want to ingest, smoke, or whatever, we should legalize. Again, all these, all these arguments, again, please hear me very clearly. You guys know UCC is not a political church. We, I, we will I will never tell you who to vote for. I will never tell you anything like that. And I certainly won't tell you how to live. Regardless of what you believe, I, that's not my job. My job as a pastor is to help you to understand what the Bible will give to you, and then you have the responsibility of, of following that accordingly. But what's interesting about what he does is he says something really key is that Western culture especially has really doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on this idea that our desires can lead us to the ultimate good. And we go, yeah, that, and for most of you, this, this shouldn't, I don't think this is shocking or surprising to you. This is not like, oh, what? It's like, no, no, you know, un unless you are like an old order Mennonite or something like that. Um, I, I, I don't think this should be a kind of shocking to you. Another article I came across, this, one, this is from Psychology Today, it talks about why hedonism doesn't lead to happiness. Now, what's interesting, and this is kind of this is what's fascinating to me about this topic, is on the one hand, culture, media, celebrities, these individuals, these um, micro-influencers, macro-influencers, are talking about pleasure and hedonism. But on the other hand, mental health professionals know this is actually a destructive lifestyle. 
This is what it says. Our time in this life is limited and could end at any moment. That's a feel-good statement, right? So surely we should treat ourselves to as much enjoyment, adventure, and experience as we can. What would be the point of putting ourselves through suffering and hardship? You could compare, it to, uh, compare life to a long vacation. When we go on vacation, we usually try to have as much of a good time as we can. So surely we should do the same with the long vacation of life. You know, what's interesting about the pandemic was that if you think about the uh, couple of years now, what was really taken away from us in the pandemic was our distractions and our pleasure. We couldn't go on vacations. We couldn't go to movies. We couldn't go to clubs. We couldn't go to restaurants. Fun fact, you don't need any of those things to survive. What you do need to survive is grocery stores. Now, I know that there was a panic on toilet paper, uh, which for some reason, I don't know if you're blowing, unless you're blowing your nose with it, I don't know what the, the need was it for, right? Uh, but because I was delivering groceries, I was delivering milk to grocery stores, they were not empty. Like our, our you know, what's interesting is that our, our, our supply chain proved surprisingly resilient in a way that was kind of interesting. Now, of course, you could say about the cost and all that. Yes, you're right. But I'm just saying, for our basic needs, those were accessible to us. Again, not asking your opinion on the pandemic and shutdowns and all that, don't care. But the point simply is, is that we were not going to die of, of this. And, and on top of that, our governments were trying as best as possible. And again, you can, you can argue the debate on whether it was good or not, but they were trying to make sure people had finances to do so and all that. What was interesting about the pandemic mostly was what things that gave us distractions or pleasures, these are the things that were taken from us. And that's when we lost our ever-loving minds. Because all of a sudden, we're like, I can't go out on Friday or Saturday, or I can't go to this, I can't go to this venue. And you have to understand, my wife loves going to concerts, right? She, she loves it. She, her and my daughter managed to get to Harry Styles, and I don't know how they did it, but they bought last-minute tickets, and they did it. She, and, and, and September, just so you know, if you follow her on Instagram, she's got six concerts lined up for September and October. All of them is terrible music, like Duran Duran and stuff like that. Actually, I think that's Duran Duran is tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, 80 stuff, right? But the point simply is, she loves this. It was all taken away from her. Now, she's also a nurse, so she saw the other side. So there was never a time where she goes, oh, I wish I could really see Duran Duran and get infected with COVID amongst a group of people. She was like, no, no, I understand this and that, that's okay. But this was taken away from her. But what happens is when pleasure is removed from our lives, we, what we realize is what pleasure really has stood for is what gives us meaning. And that's actually more of a fascinating conversation. Positive psychologists have established that merely to have a good time in the present moment does not provide the basis of a life of well-being. In the long run, trying to find happiness solely through hedonism leads to a sense of meaningless and emptiness. Now, Mental health professionals, we have known this for hundreds of years, if not thousands, again, going back to Greek philosophy. The pursuit of pleasure never fills us. It, it whets our appetite for more. All we want is more, right? All we want more. A number of years ago, I managed a clothing store, and my staff were all very much uh, going out Friday night and coming in Monday morning bleary-eyed, right? And I used to say something to them, and they hated it. They, I used to say to them, oh, did you have a good weekend? Oh, yeah. We went out, we partied, we drank. I'm like, I'm like, oh, good. So that means you don't ever have to party again. <clears throat> and they look at me like, what? I'm like, well, you, 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 you attained joy and pleasure and happiness. Therefore, you must be fulfilled. You must have been filled of it. Therefore, you don't need to. 
No, there's another party next Friday. There's another. Like, yeah, of course. Because, and the phrase for this is called the hedonic treadmill. This idea of you're chasing something but never getting close to it. Pleasure is a distraction from some of the angst that we feel in life. So let's go on. I know you're, you're, you're seeing where I'm going with this, but just, just we'll get there. In our culture, hedonism, pleasure, desires have be has become the highest truth value. It is no wonder that our intimacies have become what define us. Let me just pause there. Now, you understand that I'm using the word intimacies for a catch-all for, you know, different things. And the reason I'm trying to do so is I respect, I, I, I will always respect a person's individual right to be whatever they want. Okay? And we're going to have that in the, in the caveat section. And don't worry, I'll explain what caveat means. But what's interesting is, is that if you look historically, because you guys know that one of the things I am is an amateur historian. I love history. Right? I love studying history because I love seeing how cultures have, have uh, operated based upon the background of that culture. And we're going to do a little, I'm going to give you a little history lesson of the Roman emperors in a moment. But the point is, in the last 20 years, our sexuality, our gender, our intimacies, these are what have become that define us. Previous to that, it was occupation, it was philanthropy. It was, it was other things. So what's interesting is our culture has shifted to these things being the ultimate good or ultimate goal or the teleos, as the Greek would say, this idea of the ultimate meaning of value of life. And we go to ourselves, huh, how did that happen? Now, caveat. By the way, caveat just simply means clarification. It just means, let me give you some precursors before we jump into the conversation. Let me give you three caveats before we jump into this conversation. The first caveat is this. Unity of scripture means clarity of belief and behavior. Here's what I mean. We talk about this at UCC, and I say this to you, and I'll remind you once again. The Bible has some aspects of it that can be a little bit murky, right? We've talked about it, right? Let's talk about end times. Christians love talking about it, but the fun fact about end times is we have very little knowledge of what it looks like, opposed, as opposed to what you've been told or taught or books you've gone to or conferences you've gone to. We don't really know what happens in the end times. We, we don't, right? And even this idea... The fiction of the rapture. Do I say that out loud? Um, we have a lot of misunderstanding of, of Jewish apocalyptic literature that we think we understand in its imagery and its usage. We go, oh, this is what it means. Not so much. So we would say that that is a murky part of it. The other part of it would be angels and demons. I've taught on angels and demons before, but one of the things I've said to you is the Bible doesn't give us a lot to gotta go on. Why? It's not important. It gives us glimpses. We have certain passages, we go, oh, okay. But there's no consistency that we can actually make a theology of angelic manifestations because there's just not enough given to us. But those would be the couple of areas that would be, I would say, murky. But the Bible, incredibly, and we're going to see this this morning, gives us a great deal of unity in, 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 in Scripture. So remember I've told you that we break the Bible down into three parts, right? So we break the Bible down into three parts, which tend to correspond with the Trinity. So I see the Bible as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So God the Father is Yahweh of the Old Testament, right? That's why the Jews were monotheists, because the revelation of God at that point in time was just God the Father. And what does the God the Father do? The God the Father gives us boundaries. and says, this is the boundaries I give to humanity, and for the Jewish people specifically. And these are the consequences of when you break those boundaries. So this idea of holiness, we go, okay, 
But then the God, the Son, comes along, and Jesus, the incarnation, and he says, okay, these are the boundaries that my Father gave to you, but what you have lacked in these boundaries is the idea of love and grace. And my job is to teach you what forgiveness looks like, and that not only do that, but be that for you between the Father and me. We go, okay. But see, it doesn't stop there. Then we get to God the Spirit, and that's the book of Acts onward, the letters, all that, that falls under the God the Spirit. And what does God the Spirit do? God the Spirit takes the law and takes grace and applies them according to what we need in our lives. So sometimes God the Spirit will come to you and will convict you. And that conviction is the God the Spirit trying to make you aware that there's a misalignment in your life according to the boundaries that God has set up. And so the Spirit will come along and will convict us and we will go, oh, we'll have an awareness, whether gradual or suddenly, of like, yeah, this is an area of my life I've not released to God. But then the Spirit will then apply God the, uh, God the Son, and that will say, this is the wrong, this is the sin, this is the misalignment, now here's Christ, and this is the cross, and this is how we get back into right relationship with God. You go, oh, okay. So with that, whenever I look for a consistency of message that is, that is unity, I look at the Old Testament, the Gospels, Acts onwards. And if there is a consistency in all three areas, I call that unity. Second thing. We are exiles and ambassadors. Now, this is really important, and you'll see this with Paul laying down these boundaries for the, uh, for the church in Corinth. The reason I use the word exiles and ambassadors, it kind of gives you two things. I could use the word refugee. I could use the word immigrant. I could use all this type of language, which, again, immigrant, that's what I was, right? What's an immigrant? What's a refugee? A refugee is a person who flees a culture to come to another culture. And what happens in this new culture is it takes time to figure out what things mean, whether it's language, whether it's, it's cooking, whether it's food. I remember my mom, when we first moved to Canada, she went to the grocery store asking for ghee. For those of you who are Indian, you know what ghee is. For the rest of you, like, why is she looking for keys to the grocery store? And I, it's okay. It's okay. You're all white. It's fine, right? But the point is, ghee is, is essential for Indian cooking. And it wasn't as readily available as my mom would have. And so there was this kind of a moment of like, okay, how do I find this in a grocery store that's not really designed for me, right? Now, today, you can, there, there are Indian stores in, in uh, KW that you go to the grocery stores and it's there. Back then, not so much. The point simply is, is that she was a refugee. She was an exile. She was an immigrant in a different culture. As Christ followers, I want you to have that image when we talk about Western culture. Because we are exiles in this culture, which means we do not control the culture. We are in a culture that is different from our culture. Our culture is the second part, which is ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. We are children of the kingdom of heaven. No matter what you are, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your age, doesn't matter anything about you, what you were is not what you are if you've decided to follow Christ. There is an adoption of a different way of looking. Third, and this is the one we're going to kind of touch on as well, too. This is a lot of preamble, but you'll understand why in a second. Christianity is essentially a reformed Judaism. I say this to you again. I'll say it to you uh, just to keep reminding you. I want, I want to hammer this into your head. Christianity is Judaism for the Gentiles. Remember what I've said to you before? The Bible was written to Jewish people first. First. Full stop. Right? So as Gentiles, what's our job? It's to understand the Bible first as the Jewish people understood it, then how it applies to us. Why? Because the Jewish filter, and, it, and again, all I've taught you in the last, how long has UCC been going? Eight years? Seven years? Eight years? 
eight, eight years. Okay, for the last eight years, all I've been trying to teach you, help you to understand is this is the Jewish filter for understanding the Bible better. I think I've done an okay job, but, you know, there's still more to come. And this morning, you'll see why this is kind of important. Okay, you good? You ready? Here we go. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm only going to be pulling a couple of verses because, again, this particular topic is going to take a lot more time. So let's just jump into the first part of it to kind of jump in. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, Paul sets the stage here. And Paul says this, I can hardly believe the report about sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be in mourning and sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Right at the top, Paul is going to shift gears, right? So remember, in chapter 4, Paul says, what, what satisfies your desires? Well, in chapter 5, he's going to really be a little bit more specific about this. Now, I'm going to jump down a couple of verses here because Paul's going to continue on. Verse 6, 7, uh, part A. You're boasting about this. is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Let me just pause there. Now, the reason I want to show you this verse is because what it shows for us is the church of Corinth is so used to this that they're boasting about it. They're bragging about it. Whenever you brag about something, it means that you don't really understand the way it sounds to other people. Now, there's a phrase that people use today, this idea of privilege, right? I think this is a really fascinating conversation. I think it might be over-applied, and it might be under-applied, and that's a whole different conversation. But what they're trying to say is, when you say something, when you do something, you may not realize how it's coming across to somebody else. And I go, oh, okay, that, I guess that makes sense, right? So, you know, it's funny. Um, on social media, oftentimes people say, oh, I wish I could just travel for the rest of my life. Who wouldn't, right? I would love to go to a hotel, make a mess, order food, then leave and I have to clean up, right? Like, that would be fantastic, right? But, of course, that, what is that really all about? <clears throat> and, 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 again, it's not about people boasting about it. People are like, oh, I just wish I could, or I would just, you know, I want to be a, a travel influencer or whatever the phrasing might be, right? Now, the other part that I want to kind of point out to you is that Paul used the phrase yeast, now, this is not the first time this idea is used in the Bible. Jesus uses it quite a bit. Now, what is the idea of yeast, right? For those of you who are bakers, you know. Yeast is what's going in, to uh, infect the bread to help it to rise, right? It's, it's, gonna, it's going to infiltrate the entire bread. So Paul is pointing something out here, that this particular sin is one that spreads, that one that affects everything. We go, oh, okay. Let's go, let's go to chapter 6, because Paul's going to deal with this in chapter 6 as well, too. Chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Look what he says. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. So, Again, what I'm trying to emphasize to you is Paul is going to try to help the church of Corinth readjust their understanding. Now, what I'm going to do for you first is I want to lay down to you a historical background of what's going on here. And the reason I want to lay down historical background is you need to understand what Paul is trying to deal with in the church. So the first thing you need to understand were the Roman emperors. Okay? Roman emperors back then are, would be what our celebrity culture would be today. 
these are individuals that the culture would look to and say, I want to emulate, replicate this individual. Okay? So first, the Roman emperor that you need to know about is a guy named Caligula. You're welcome that he has the shortest of all of them because the stuff that he's done, I can't even put here. Okay? Because I realize that there might have been kids here, so I'm not going to bother. But let me just give you a couple of things. Caligula, and again, 37 to 41, now this is important, the date, and the dates here are important here because this is the dates that Paul begins his missionary journeys in around um, Asia Minor. Had incestuous relations with his three sisters and converted the palace into a brothel, forcing senators' wives to serve as consorts. Again, I just give you a couple of lines there and your stomach's already turning. You should see what this guy's done, okay? Like the stuff that he has done is, is almost, it's almost unimaginable, but this was normal to the Romans, okay? Next individual, the emperor right before the one that's in rule before we get to a guy named Nero is a guy by the name of Claudius. Fun fact about Claudius, Claudius had a lot of horrible things, but guess what? His wife beats him to the punch. We would probably know about Claudius' sex life and it didn't completely pale in, 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 into insignificance when compared to that of his life, uh, his wife, um, uh, Messalina. What the empress allegedly managed to get away with is astounding. Pliny the Elder records that she held a competition in the Imperial Palace with one of the Rome's most notorious prostitutes to see how many men they could sleep with. Not so fun fact, she won, okay, in this contest. And again, I'm only giving you brief. I don't even want to tell you the other stuff that, that they did. Point simply is, okay, this is what was normal in Roman culture. Last one. And the reason this is the last one is because this is the guy that's in power while Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. It's a guy by the name of Nero. And I took a, uh, a, a quote from a biography on Nero just to kind of condense it down. Nero murdered his mother. Nero fiddled with Rome while Rome burned. Nero, now when people say fiddle, people are like, he's playing. No, he didn't fiddle. He just didn't do anything. That's what he means by fiddle, okay? Nero also slept with his mother. That's a collective ew. Nero married and ex executed one stepsister, executed his other stepsister, raped and murdered his stepbrother. In fact, he executed and murdered most of his closest relatives. He kicked his pregnant wife to death. He castrated and then married a freedman. He married another freedman, this time himself playing the bride. He raped a vestal virgin. He melted down the household gods of Rome for their cash value. This is the guy that's in power when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Okay. This is important. Why? Because believe it or not, as atrocious as this seems, this is normative behavior in the Roman Empire. I've showed you the last three Roman emperors that were in power. I showed you their behaviors. I'm trying to keep it PG, people, right? But I've showed you, I've given you a hint of how bad it is, okay? Right. Let's, let's, let me show you something else here as well, too. This goes back to uh, week one. Remember I said to you, that one of the things that marked Corinth from everywhere else is that Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Remember the phrase that was used to go into Corinth? Sailors would say this because Corinth was a large coastal city that had a lot of sailors coming through. Sailors would say to each other, in Latin, when you go to Corinth, bring lots of money. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Get the idea? And so what we saw in the very week number one was that Corinth had the largest temple to the to the goddess Aphrodite. Now, why this is important is because prostitution was part and parcel to the Corinthian lifestyle, okay? So, this is all well and good. And again, you, know, you guys know I love history, but it gets even worse than this, okay? Let me show you something else. 
The guy by the name of uh, Peter Brown wrote this incredible book called Body and Society, Men, Women, and Sexual Renunciation in Early Christianity. Now, what I loved about his book was, is that he was trying to juxtapose the Christian sexual ethic with the Roman one. And one of the things he says is this, men owned the bodies of their male and female servants within the walls of a great rambling house filled with young servants over whom the master ruled supreme. Fidelities to one's wife remained a personal option. Despite the harsh laws punishing married women for adultery, infidelity by their husbands incurred no legal punishment and very little moral disapprobate. That word. Okay, so the point simply is this. What you'll find in the Roman culture, it was very misogynistic. That the rules that applied to men did not, uh, did, uh, only applied, sorry, the rules applied to women did not apply to the men. Now, what's interesting is, so whenever the filters kick in, you know whatever's going to come out after that. It must have been really bad, so I'm trying to find a way, a nice way of saying this. So, um, so sexual freedom historically, has always been a male-dominated thing. And why, the, that, why that is, is because sex for men is very different than sex for women. And not even just from a biological implication. What we see in Roman culture was, is that the power and the freedom that men had did not uh, give itself over to women. Although women had a lot of power and freedom as well too. I don't want to make you sound as if they're not that, but, and they did uh, participate in other things. But again, predominantly Roman culture was misogynistic. And in misogynistic cultures, what happens is women are seen as property, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more to that later. Another one. Additionally, according to John Christum, a renowned Christian leader from the 4th and early 5th centuries, Roman laws allowed dealers to enslave children and to train them into sexual specialties for sale as prostitutes. Again, I apologize for telling you that, but what you need to understand, in Corinth, in Roman culture, there was no age of consent. There was no, hey, this is a child. That doesn't exist. And again, I, I apologize for the grossness of, of that statement, but what I need you to understand is this is what Gentile Christians were living amongst. Okay? I'm trying to give you a historical background to understand how absolutely jarring Christianity is going to be to this culture. Okay? So what we see here is that um, these freedoms that, that, that would love to, the culture would love to tell us as far as free yourself and live out your truth and all these things, there is a dark side to this. And the dark side to this is that men have ha experienced it different than women do. Again, not that women can't. It's just, it's just a different context altogether. Now, the biblical perspective, that's just background. The word that Paul is going to use for sexual immorality is a Greek word called porneo. Now, we're gonna have to, uh, I'm going to have to unpack to you what this means because if you were to do any kind of a research on this word, depending on the, the resource that you will look at, there are a lot of redacted. Now, redaction means looking into the past and changing what it means. So I'm going to try to give you a historical background of this word because this is a word that is used 25 times in the New Testament. Fun fact, I always see this on social media. There are people saying, Jesus never talked about, insert whatever sexual thing you want to talk about. Just so you know, whenever you see that, just two things you need to understand. A, that's a lie. 
be the person who doesn't know anything about the Bible. Another fun fact, I see this a lot by Christians, which again, shouldn't be surprising to me, and even pastors. Again, shouldn't surprise me, it does. So this word, again, I've broken it down, its usage, that, so you can see and understand what, what it means. I'm going to unpack to you what it means. And we're going to look at it from different perspectives. But let me just show you the usages. So it's used five times in 1 Corinthians. It's used another time in 2 Corinthians. So six, actually two more times in 2 Corinthians. So seven times in both letters. Now, you will see here a cluster of what Paul is talking about. And you see a theme emerging. We go, okay. But what's interesting is, is a lot of uh, the... So what I do when I, when I try to teach on this topic is I try to read a lot from people who I don't disagree with, or I don't agree with. I like to listen to people or hear from people's perspective that I would say would not be, would be either progressive or liberal or high Bible criticism, Bart Ehrman, you know, all these other individuals. Why? Because I just want, I'm just curious to know their argumentation. It's important to me to understand the other side because I just want to make sure I'm not just leaping to a conclusion. But what's interesting to me, and what I always find it kind of interesting, is that um, people always seem to think that they use this idea, whenever you hear this idea of Pauline Christianity, or Christianity that Paul created, right? What's interesting about that statement, what they're trying to infer is that Paul himself took Christianity in a different direction. I would say to you that that is a gross exaggeration and a deep misunderstanding of the progressive understanding of what the Bible was trying to convey. Because Jesus uses the word porneo, several times in the Gospels themselves. Paul didn't make this word up. He's taking it from his Savior. Paul sees that this is the word that Jesus uses. This is why he uses this word to Corinth as well. And again, John, uh, the Apostle John uses it seven times in the book of Revelation as well too. And again, it's also used in the book of Acts. Now, this is important. Why this is important? Because it's not Paul that's going to define this word for us. It's actually Jesus. Right? So there's a whole group of Christians called Red Letter Christians. And Red, red Letter Christians would say to us that, hey, just read the red, letters, uh, the red letters of Jesus in the Bible. Just so you know, what that means is in some Bibles, all of Jesus' words are in red letters. So just read what Jesus did, or, or, and then that's, that's all you need to know. And I say, fair enough, but this group of people have a tendency to kind of say, we don't need the Old Testament. That's, that's ancient. And we don't need Pauline Christianity. What we need is Jesus Christianity. I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough. Then here you go. Then at least wrestle with what Jesus is saying. Now, it doesn't end there. Remember I said to you, a consistency of Scripture, Old Testament Gospels and letters? Well, this word is going to be used, and especially in a particular place. And this is in the book of Acts. For those of you who know where I'm going with this, Acts chapter 15 is this what's called the Council of Jerusalem. This is a... This is like the Lord of the Rings Council of Elrond moment, right? Okay? So what happens is, is, is the church leaders come together, and the issue they want to deal with is us, Gentiles. What do we do with Gentiles, right? And guys, what they're really trying to deal with is they want to circumcise you. Because this is how you show adherence to Yahweh and to the Jewish laws, is by circumcision for the males. Okay? But, but Paul goes, Wait. Actually, Paul and Barnabas, they go, wait, it's not for, for us to circumcise the Gentiles. So the question they ask themselves is a really important question. They say, what should the Gentiles live and understand of the Jewish dietary and restrictions that God gives them in the book of Leviticus? It's a great question. So James, the younger brother of Jesus, gives what's what I call the halakha, which is called the middle path. 
And what he does is he gives them four things that every Gentile should understand what it means to follow a Christ follower. And look at the words they use. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from porneo, sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Now, you'll notice on the screen there, I'm using two verses. James presents it, then they put this letter together. Why? It's emphasis. Okay, let's make sure the Gentiles understand this. The word they use for sexual immorality for the Gentiles, porneo. Where do they get this word from? Jesus. What word does Paul use? Porneo. Where do he get this from? He's there at the book of Acts. He's there at the council of Jerusalem. He knows what the word they use. What word is he going to use to Corinth? Porneo. Okay? So, again, I am trying to really home so that you understand. But let's not stop there. One commentator, one very progressive commentator said this, can we not as Christians unshackle ourselves from the traditions of the past and of the Bible? I said, okay. So what did the anti-Nicene fathers? When I use the phrase anti-Nicene, what this simply means is Christianity up to 325 where the Council of Nicaea happens. That is what I would call the most primitive, I use the word in, in its, its exact usage, a primitive Christianity, okay? So what are the anti-Nicene fathers, uh, how do they see Porneo? Great question. There's two documents that you should really know about. One is called the Didache, the other one is called the Shepherd of Hermes. The Shepherd of Hermes and the Didache were two documents that circulated in the early church as ways of saying, hey, by the way, these are ways Christians should live amongst the Romans, okay? The Didache... It's an incredible document because it's written between 50 and 70 A.D. That's really important. Why? It's before Constantine comes around. It's before Christianity becomes co-opted by, by the Roman culture. It's primitive. Shepherd of Hermes, 2nd century, 140 to 154. Again, remember me? I like history. So all I did was try to read what, were the, what was being written in this time period did they understand what porneo was? Did they understand the sexual ethic? Did they have a good understanding? Or does, you know, liberal or progressive theologians today who are redacting history, do they have a point? Spoiler alert, they don't. Okay, so this is what the Didache is. This is an exact quote from the Didache. The Didache opens up with this line. The Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. The, the document was meant to be... Um, uh, copied and, and spread to all the Christians in the Roman Empire. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the Didache goes like this. There are two ways, one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. The Didache starts off by saying, there are two ways to live out your faith, authentic and deceptive, or a lie. Now, in chapter 2, verses 2 of the Didache, it says this. And the second commandment of the teaching, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit pedastry, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not practice magic, you shall not practice witchcraft, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is begotten, you shall not covet the things of your neighbor. Pedastry, just in case you're wondering, is a whole planning of younger children thing, okay? Fornication, porneo, it's the word that they use. That's the word that they use in the 50 to 70 AD to help the Christians who are new Christians. And again, this is all to Gentiles, okay? So they go, okay, fair enough. Let's take a look at the Shepherd of Hermes document now. Commandment uh, 8, 
verses 1 and 3. Sir, I respond, what are the kinds of evils over which it is necessary for us to exercise self-control? Listen, he said, adultery and fornication, lawlessness, lawless drunkenness, wicked luxury, many kinds of food, and extravagance of wealth. So, fornication, porneo. Fun little thing there as well, too. Wicked luxury, extravagance of wealth. I just feel like we need to send this to some American pastors just to say, hey, you know what? Just in case you've missed this one. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Now, what does the word porneo mean? I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you three perspectives. I'm going to give you a Christian perspective. I'm going to give you a Jewish perspective. And I'm going to give you a Messianic Jewish perspective because I don't want you to take my word for what it means. Jewish, uh, when I say Messianic Jewish perspective, what I mean is a person who is Jewish, who has accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Okay? So first perspective by Scott McKnight, again, a renowned New Testament uh, uh, theologian, says this. But what does perneo mean? There are two basic meanings. One, sexual relations with a prostitute, or in a more general sense, sexual immorality for a Jew refers to prohibitive degrees of intercourse. When you double-click on the term perneo, it takes you to Leviticus chapter 18. These are the intimacy laws that the Jews understood that God says to them, this is what is appropriate, this is what is inappropriate. So while perneo can be a sweeping generalization term referring to any kind of sexual immorality, for the Jew, there was an established list of what it was meant. If one, if one wants specifics, no better listing can be found than in Leviticus chapter 18. In fact, the importance of this chapter to defining what perneo would have meant for a first century Jew cannot be exaggerated. Leviticus 18 was for the Jewish world of Torah observance, God's covenant gift to the Israelites that both clarified how to live and set them apart from the pagans. So, when we look at the first century church, what you need to understand, the first century church relied heavily upon the Old Testament. Remember when Paul writes to Timothy, all scriptures are God-breathed and useful for teaching instruction, yada, yada, yada. He's referring to the Old Testament. Why? The New Testament isn't quite co collected yet. What we, do, what we fail to remember and what we fail to understand is the majority of the early church was using the Old Testament because the letters that Paul was writing, the stuff that was happening, wasn't being gathered together in one particular spot. They were being, they were being uh, distributed, but not extensively. So what, it's interesting here, the reason why Scott McKnight goes to Perneo into what it means for the, the Jewish person is because this is what the scriptures that the early church was using. Now, Let's go to what the rabbinic, uh, what, what a Jewish person who does not believe Jesus is the Messiah, this, what, the, what did they believe about Leviticus 18 and, and this term? I came a guy named Rabbi Eli Yogev, and this is important because he's going to say something in here that I need to really emphasize for you. If God is the author, author of Leviticus 18.22, then God knows what God is doing. This may pose an immense challenge, but it shouldn't lead to an altering of the Torah. Rabbi Ari Sagal published an article titled, The Biggest Challenge to Emua, Jewish Faith of Our Time. Pause. The article he's referencing, because of course I clicked the link to figure it out, what he's saying is the greatest threat to Judaism was the sexual ethic of the Torah. It lives in direct contradiction to Western culture. And because of that, many younger Jewish followers are leaving because of Torah observance. Now, this is the part that I want to emphasize to you. Many Orthodox Jews do not believe in reinterpreting the Torah to adapt to this reality and are unaccepting of those who do either explicitly or implicitly. Here's the thing. You can find rabbis who are progressive who have no problem reinterpreting the Old Testament to fit their particular needs. The word that I want to emphasize to you, and if this was Sesame Street, this would be the word of the day. Orthodox. 
orthodox has a really simple meaning. The Bible says what it says. You can't change it. That's as simple as I can get to orthodox. Okay? So the word evangelical has a lot of really bad connotations. But evangelical simply meant at the very beginning of its starting of the movement is a literal reading of the Bible. Okay? So this is really important. Now, how does a Jewish Christian understand this? Remember I told you I'm going to give you three perspectives? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'd like to introduce you to um, Rabbi Dr. Vered Hillel. By the way, um, she's a woman. I wasn't quite sure what Vered was, but I clicked on her link and I read her bio. She's a woman. I thought, ah, cool. Here we go. The search for a universal statement on divorce from the entire scripture created the need to determine the exact meaning of the word porneo as used in the Matthean uh, exemptive clause. Remember, Paul, Jesus uses porneo as a reason why divorce can take place. Many different interpretations have been proposed. These include polygamy, incest, adultery, sex before marriage, and prostitution. Each of these is correct because the basic meaning of porneo is to engage in any type of sexual immorality. Porneo captures the nuances of erva in the legal idiom, which means except for sexual indecency immorality. The word introduces a sense of universality in that it encompasses all types of sexual immorality, not one specific form. Thus, in answering the Pharisees' specific question about the grounds for divorce based on Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, in its first century context, Yeshua repudiates any grounds, any matter clause for divorce except for any type of sexual immorality. Why this is important, because if you look on this, on, on many commentators, and again, I'll just tell you this right now. If you click on Porneo and look for interpretation, the first three pages that Google's going to give to you are all progressive. I don't know if that's a fun fact or not, but it's true. I had to click through, I, I clicked through every link, but I had to click through all the pages because I, I, I realized, and again, I don't really care what the person says, I want to know who they are. So we know how the bios, you click the bio, I click the bios. I just want to know their, their biasy. I just want to know what they believe, right? Every one of them that reinterpreted this had a particular reason for it. Let me just put it to you that way, okay? But what I love about this article by Dr. Uh, Ra Rabbi Vered Halil is that what she does so uh, importantly, she says, Porneo, because one of the things that, that will be spoken of when they were to use Porneo is it's only about prostitution. What Jesus is talking about prostitution. And that's a yes and it's not just simply that because again in the first century they understood the word to mean a lot more so what's a biblical perspective as the early church was surrounded by a sexual diverse culture they adopted a jewish model of relationship and intimacy this cannot be overstated enough because in many ways this was as countercultural as anything christians could do one of the most countercultural things that christians did in the early church was one they stopped looking at rich people and poor people, male and female, and we'll get more to that later on. But the second thing that they did is they provided dignity, wait for it, to women and children. Wait, what? Why do women and children need dignity? Because in the Roman Empire, they didn't have it. And so what Christianity did and their sexual ethic was is to say women aren't property and children deserve to be protected. See, it's funny to me when I hear people talking about the sexual revolution. Actually, fun fact, there's a woman named Lu uh, Louise Perry. Just came out with a book. I haven't got it yet. But it's, the book's title is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Of course, that catch, catches my attention, so I listen to a podcast of her. And they just go through and they talk about her chapter titles. They even talk about the book. It's fascinating. There is a pushback 
in our culture to talk about how we talk about the sexual revolution, but we don't realize it's just male dominated. All these freedoms, like like the sexual revolution, is a is is a guy's paradise. I, I I know that just sounds like a horrible thing to say, but that's exactly what she says in her book. By the way, she's not a Christian. She's a matter of fact. I think what she she declares at one point in time that she's an atheist. She's coming at this from and and her experience for this. She worked at a rape uh, crisis center for like decades and accumulated all her stories and all the women who were coming in about this and saying this is, this is what she was coming up to. She says all the protections that history and culture has placed for women have been stripped away for freedom and expression. And what this does, though, is that it leaves women vulnerable and, and, again, children as well, too. Just so you know, in the next couple of years, you're going to start seeing some more inf- some more conversations about pedastry, if I can use that Old Testament word, but you'll see it. I I just saw recently uh, a psychologist use the phrase adolescent attraction. I think I may have threw up in my mouth a little bit, but this is something that's going to start now coming more into it because why? If you've accepted all of this, then you'll be dumb enough to accept this. So what did Christianity do? And I'm going to show you this great article by Carl Harper in a second here where he talks about this. Um, Porneo and its derivatives was widely established in the early church and understood by the Gentile church. But it should be noted that Christianity grew, thrived in a Roman context. One of the things I hear in in, uh, commentators about this is that we're too repressive Christians. We really are. But if we were just open to everybody, our churches would grow. I have a mentor of mine who is in a mainline church. And he tells me that every church that adopts a position that, ex- that, that, again, this is me trying to be sensitive here, I don't do it well, but adopts a position that is non-orthodox, within 10 years that church dies. I said, wait, what? He goes, people think the reason why mainline churches are dying is because their population is getting elderly. He says, that is true. But if you look at when the church begins to leave orthodox biblical interpretation, that's when they start dying. Look, again, it just makes sense. Why? Holy Spirit's not going to bless anything out like that. It's just not. So what you have to understand is Christianity grew, thrived in this context. Why? Because the offer of the gospel as being a safe haven for the vulnerable was absolutely just staggeringly appealing to this culture. And guess guess who were the early adopters of Christianity? Slaves and women. That, like, literally, the people who saw the gospel as being freedom, as protection, all that, slaves and women. Who do we, as Western churches, try to appeal to? Middle class. Not the vulnerable, not those who are on the margins, middle class. Middle and upper class if we can. Why? Because they're good tithers, apparently. It's, it's really money-based. I know that's a horrible thing to say, but tweet that, right? So this is what we've, we've, we've shifted from this. But back in the ancient days, uh, this wasn't it. Now, a guy named Kyle Harper wrote a book. By the way, a fantastic book. By the way, this guy is a great writer too, just so you know. The book's called The First Sexual Revolution. And, of course, he's talking about the early church. And this is what Kyle Harper has to say. This was a scene on which Christian, Christians came loudly striding. The Christian movement's sexual demands were not just austere or unusual, they were jolting and deliberately so. 
Could you imagine saying to a Christ follower in, the Roman, in a Roman context saying, hey, just so you know, you can't have sex with your slaves. You can't go have temple prostitutes. And you have to kind of take control of your desires. Yeah, no thanks. Right? No thanks. Paul's letters show us that the Christian sexual morality was settled on the go, adapting the gospel's searing ethical, ethic of radical love. That's why I love his language. Searing ethic of radical love and interior purity to the realities of life in the towns of the empire. Paul's letter to the fledgling Christian community in Corinth provides the clearest example. It is the most direct entree we have to the confrontation between the nascent Christian church and the habits and half-articulate expectations that govern sexual life in Greek or Roman cities. Again, I love this guy's language. I love his book. But what I love about this is this word here, jolting. Christianity comes to the Gentile church, to the Roman people who are used to a certain lifestyle. And he says to them, Paul, John, Peter, Jesus, that can't, this can't happen anymore. And if you want to follow Jesus, you got to control your loins. I don't know if there's a hashtag for that. But that's what he says. Now, Kyle goes on, because I, I got to give you more, because this guy's so great. First Corinthians shows that Paul's message was heard in the most contradictory ways, even by sympathetic ears. Some of the new adherents to the faith had drawn startlingly libertine conclusions from Paul's language of Christian freedom. This is what's interesting. So Paul was with the church in Corinth for three years. He taught them this stuff. But the message they heard is that we're free. Freedom in Jesus, free. Free to be me, Right? So it stood to reason that just as the Gentile Christians were freed from the magnificently intricate regulations of the Jewish dietary code, so too they might expect a certain laxness in erotic matters. It makes sense, right? If, I don't have to, if, I, if I'm allowed to eat bacon now and, and I can have crab and lobster, maybe I can, uh, you know, other stuff. I'm just, just going to leave, you know, you know, other stuff, right? That's my, that's my best John Mulaney impression. Okay. Paul's use of porneo fuses two very different frame, uh, frames of reference, one biblical and the other drawn from the experience of life in the Greco-Roman towns where the apostles preached. Paul's ban on porneo restricted one of the slave owner's most ordinary prerogatives, sexual access to his slaves. We can trace a dawning awareness in the early church, unlike anything in pagan antiquity, of the sexual integrity of all persons. By the 5th century, Christian emperors were actually taking proactive, if still by our standards, limited measures to protect the bodily integrity of a vulnerable woman. What did, the church, what did Christians do in the beginning? They saw that this particular group, children and women, and just so you know, remember the Canaanites? Remember the people that, that, that Christians go, why do the Israelites have to drive them out? Canaanite religion was based upon two ideas. One, that women and children could be sacrificed or used. And guess what? Yahweh comes along and says, everything's created in my image, and this is not okay. It's not okay. Tear down the temples, drive them out, destroy every aspect of this religion. Why? Because under the covenantal law, women, children, and men are all stand equal before God and are not meant to be abused. All have the image of God stamped upon them. See, again... This is a funny thing. Whenever I hear about people today trying to argue about a, um, an ethic that protects this group, they, they have no basis for it except for a Judeo-Christian one. Because if all desires are equal and you live your truth, then how do you not then minimize a person to what they can offer to you? Okay, almost done. Almost. Um, for those of you who were at uh, Cam and Sarah's wedding, Cam and Sarah asked me a question. They wanted me to preach about uh, what's the difference between a Christian marriage 
and a non-Christian marriage. Now, what they didn't know, they thought they were pretty special asking me this question, and they were, but I'd actually been working on this for three weeks. So when I had come up with what I, what I spoke on, this is what it is here, right? So the first thing about what's interesting about Roman marriages and what Western marriage is, is Roman and Western marriages are contractual. Contracts are often made for a limited period of time. Contracts often deal with specific actions. Contracts are based on an if-then mentality. Contracts are motivated by the desire to keep or get something. So contracts in marriage today are all about when this thing ends, how do I keep my stuff? Okay? This is what marriage looks like in a Western context. All the laws, right? And even if you look at the language of laws, depending uh, even on to children, it's still contractual. It, it cares nothing for the well-being of children. That's why it's as easy as, as it is to get divorced. Why? It's a contractual arrangement, right? So what's the difference between a contract and a covenant? Great question. Let me give you some examples. Covenants are initiated for the benefit of the other person. So what I th one of the things I said at Cam and Sarah's wedding was, in a covenant, you know, the vows portion of a wedding is not this. If my spouse does this, then I'll do this. Right? No, vows are meant to be unconditional. Basically, I will behave this way regardless of the circumstances our marriage finds itself. In covenant relations, people make unconditional promises. Covenant relationships are based on steadfast love. Covenant relationships use uh, commitments as permanent. Covenant relationships require confrontation and forgiveness. So think of this for a, for a moment. The word covenant is a Jewish word. But this Jewish word comes into the Gentile church, and guess what? They like it more than contracts. They say this works better in keeping two people together when really all culture wants to do is rip them apart. One of the things that Cam and Sarah and I, and for those else here that I've, uh, I've married, um, one of the things I say to the couples is this, is that in everything we do in premarital counseling is to prepare you for the future, but I can't prepare you for what I don't know what's going to happen. I, I just can't, right? We do budgets. We talk about what does love look like? What, you know, we talk about origin of family therapy. We do all that kind of good stuff. But I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what's going to happen five years from now. I don't have a counseling technique to talk about if the other person gets a, uh, a disease or uh, has a mental breakdown or, uh, I don't know, we replicate dinosaurs and they rule the world and all of a sudden we're running for our lives. I, I don't have any way to kind of talk about that. Right? But what I do have is to talk about the principles of Scripture. The last piece of homework that the couples who I marry have to do, they have to create a spiritual resume for their spouse. And what that means simply is, is they have to go through the Bible and say, this is the character I want for the other person. It has to be based upon the Scripture. And the reason I ask them to do this is because whatever expectations they have of the other should be based upon the Bible. This is why, as, as a pastor, I no longer do weddings that are people outside of my church. I get lots of requests to do so. And the reason I don't, because if you don't attend church, then who cares if a pastor does it? Go to Justice of the Peace. Go get that piece of paper. Because, honestly, I approach marriage as a covenant, not a contract. And if you don't have faith as your background, contract's good enough. All right. I know, I know, right? But you see why? Okay, right? Okay, good. All right. A really important quote here because this is, this is really key. When we talk about sexual porneo, 
we always have this tendency to talk to couples. And you're, if you're a single person, you're like, I don't have to deal with that. Stanley Everhouse says it this way, and I like what he says here. The church is composed of the single and the married. Both are called to a life of faithfulness, are called to be friends, to find the loneliness that threatens anyone not married. See, one of the things, one of the mistakes the church has done is they've applied their porneo to relationships. And I can understand for that, but guess what? We turn a blind eye to single heterosexuals that are living in a way that would be contrary to Scripture. And so what I like about this quote, and the reason why I want to use this towards the end here, is that porneo isn't just for married or for people in relationships. It's also for single people as well. It's a sexual ethic that applies to everyone, right? Not just a single particular type. Okay, now Mary told you there's boundaries in this. Paul's going to now share that for us. There is boundaries in this, and this comes from chapter 5, verse 9 to 10, and uh, 12 to 13. Look what it says. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in porneo. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. Look at verses 12 to 13. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. So what is Paul saying here? What are the boundaries that he wants to apply to? And again, this is where Christians have made a mistake, Okay. If we have a biblical worldview, we understand two things. One, the culture is different from the kingdom. Okay? So what has happened is Christians have tried to tell culture how they should behave. Right? So Christians said to the culture, hey, culture, you shouldn't behave this way. And culture's like, why? Because God says so. Well, I don't believe in God. Still, you see what I'm saying here? Paul gives us very specific things here. Now, I want to be clear about something, okay? As the kingdom can't tell culture what to believe, likewise, culture can't tell the kingdom what to believe. Because this is the part we find ourselves in now. Christianity is being moved to the fringes, and culture is telling the church, this is how you should behave. Any dialogue between these two very separate spheres of a worldview from the kingdom should simply be invitation. And what I mean by invitation is, funny story, and this is a true one because I know pastors make up lots of stories. Yesterday I was in Uptown Waterloo. I found this new store called Macro Foods in Uptown because they have these pre-made uh, dishes, but they're keto, right? Because I'm a diabetic now, keto is good for me, right? No breads and, and all that kind of stuff. It's good. So I went down there yesterday uh, after my spin class. It's true, actually, after my spin class. And I got there, but the store didn't open until 11 a.m. So I sat in Waterloo Square, and they were setting up for something, some uh, cultural festival. There was a concert stand being set up. So I just sat there. But down away from there, and the reason I sat there, there was a guy on a chair preaching. I don't want to be nosy. Here's what was funny. I'm sitting there, and I'm playing Brick Breaker on my phone. But I'm listening to this person, but all of a sudden I'm starting hearing the band guys, the, the roadies, commenting on this guy. So this guy's on the corner, and he is preaching the storm up, and I'm listening to the language. And it's very classical Pentecostal language. I don't know if he's Pentecostal, but using phrase, phrases like, you should be washed with the blood of the lamb, and all these other kind of, and again, 
we understand the metaphor. Somebody walking by may go, ooh, I'm a vegan, right? Like, like you know, right? But what's interesting is I'm listening to the roadies behind me comment on what this guy is saying. And that was even more fascinating to me. Why? Because they were making fun of him. And the way they were making fun of them was by citing examples where the church has gotten it wrong or, you know, foibles that have been presented in culture. And so here I have this juxtaposition of this individual on the corner just preaching his, arm, his thing out, and there's a guy handing out, uh, I don't know, something or another. I was tempted to go down and grab one, but I didn't. Um, and I have these guys behind me setting it up, this, this, whatever this venue was for the, whatever thing was happening in the, uh, in the town square yesterday, and they were commenting on this. And, and it, just, it just struck me. Like I made this up a little while ago, but this was exactly what's happening, right? So this guy was trying to tell culture how they should behave, and culture was telling this guy, take a hike. And guess what? Rightfully so. If you do not believe in the Bible, if you do not believe in God, how do I say to you, this is the boundaries by which you should live your life. And this is where Christians have gotten it wrong. See, what Christians should have done is not tell other people what to do, but make sure they carve out a space for religious freedom that they can do what they want and they can live the way they want. But then acknowledge that those outside of the church can do whatever they want and that's not up to us anymore. I know that sounds kind of controversial because there's such a knee-jerk reaction amongst Christians to try to tell culture, this is how you should live. But the culture doesn't look at the Bible and going, yes, I believe it to be true. The culture looks at the Bible and going, that's an ancient document that has no application for my life today. Authentic Christianity is seen in our alignment with the Bible's framework of living our faith amongst those who do not believe. So one of the things I did say at Cam and Sarah's wedding is I had to take a few seconds to, uh, to, to define authentic Christianity. And I made my most controversial statement I've ever made. or well, not ever made. But just, it's me, right? But um, in, a, in, a, in a wedding speech, and I said, just so you know, when we talk about authentic Christianity, it's not individuals who go to church on Christmas and Easter. And then I kind of defined it a little bit more. So cultural Christianity is not, in my opinion... And I think there's a great case to be made in Scripture. Authentic Christianity. So, let me repeat this. Authentic Christianity is seen in our alignment with the Bible's framework of living our faith amongst those who do not believe. We as Christ followers, we go to work, we go to school, we, we live amongst people who don't believe the Bible to be true, do not believe God to be true. How do you have a conversation with that individual? Invitation. Invitation. When I started delivering milk to people, there's always that moment they say, so what do you do? Do you live milk full-time? I'm like, no. Oh, what else do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh. And then that's when the interesting conversations start happening. Right? That's when they invite me into their lives by asking me certain questions. And that's when we start having dialogues on what it means to be a Christ follower. Now, of course, what you need to understand in chapter 6, Paul is also going to give the framework for why this is important. And this is chapter uh, 6. Um, Oh, sorry. Here's the, new here's the new way to answer the question. If you ask the wrong question, you will always get the wrong answer. People will email me, Pastor, what's your church's stance on letters? My response is, what do you believe about the Bible? That's my new response. I don't answer the question anymore. I just say, hey, what do you believe in the Bible? Because what I want to understand is their framework. Because remember I've said to you, if someone asks you, are you a Christian, never say yes or no. 
Well, hopefully you won't say no, but don't say yes. Instead, do what Jesus does and ask them a question to define what that term means to them. And when you understand their definition, you can work better with their expectations. Oh, I think a Okay, I understand what you th- why you think that, but that's, that's not how I understand Christianity. And here's why. And that man has a really interesting conversation of why you're not going to tell them they're going to hell. Right? It's a, it's a different conversation. And so Paul is going to give us the theological reason for all of this, and it comes in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Famous verse, you know it. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Why is porneo so important? Because we are not our own, and God's... the See, pleasure and desires were God's gift to us. It's the abuse of these which is the enemy's twisting of that gift. It's a twisting of that gift. And so Paul does this. And again, this is not the first time he uses it. In in chapter uh, 3, he uses the same phrase as well. Do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit? Do you not realize that the Spirit of God lives in you? And that, again, I love the fact that he says, and I didn't highlight this, but you were bought with a high price. What's that price? Jesus, the Son of God. Who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, but instead submitted himself as a servant even unto death. There is no greater price for your life, people, than God himself filling the gap that it was created by sin. Humanity's sin, my sin, your sin. You know, I was going to do a whole... There's a, uh, there's a, a podcast I was listening to, and they had this woman on who uh, was formerly uh, a lesbian and formerly uh, a professor at an Ivy League school who taught gender uh, theory. And she says, she says in this interview, something very inconvenient happened. Christ got a hold of me and changed the way I view the world. So she has begun to now teach and, and, and using all her training, framing Christianity and, and, and a sexual ethic, which I just found so fascinating, especially for her story. But she used a phrase. She says, what the problem with the church today is they don't have a sexual anthropology. I've never heard that phrase before. I'm like, and then she defines it. She says, listen, the world tells us that we are, we are creatures of need and desire, and these desires need to, be, um, need to be satisfied. This is what Maslow's hierarchy of needs basically comes down to. That once the baser needs are met, you, get, you, you move the way up. Well, Maslow's hierarchy of needs have been turned upside down, and we've, we've pinnacled our desires, our wants, our needs as the top and most important part. And she says, if Christians understood the Bible properly, they would understand that all these classifications and labels in the kingdom have no meaning. And then she, what, you know what she does? She quotes Galatians chapter 3. Those in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave or free. And if Paul was writing that today, could you imagine the more classifications he would put on that? I think it would look like a dictionary at this point in time, the classifications. What Paul would say and what the church has forgotten and what this woman was saying, which is so fascinating as far in regards to her, her understanding of how the Bible views it, is all the world wants to do is tell you that you are a label. You're a label. Is your label your gender? Is your label your sexual appetite? Is your label your demographic, your stage of life? See, 
your answer could be, well, yeah. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible gives us an identity, and that identity is rooted in Jesus. So therefore, what she says, and what's interesting, what Paul says, is forget all that stuff. You want to have a proper understanding of how God sees you? He takes away all these things, and he calls us son or daughter. That's our identity. And that identity cannot be superseded by anything else. And if Christians look at another identity that is superior to that one, that is a, that is a misalignment of authentic Christianity. Let's pray. Mercy and her team are going to come up and we're going to lead. Yeah, we're going to lead one more song. I think it's appropriate. Um, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. We do this every week. For those of you visiting, relax. I'm not going to make you do anything. I do want you to reflect. I, I realize this has been a lot of information, and my slides will be available to anybody at, uh, as of tomorrow when I post them. I, I did this, and I approached this topic in this way so that you as a Christ follower can make a decision. I, you can believe whatever you want. I know that. But what I always try to do is show you how the Bible portrays something and give you the opportunity to align yourselves with that. At Uptown Community Church at UCC, we will, I will, as your pastor, as your teaching pastor, for as long as God would allow me, I will always try as best as I'm able to. And if I have ever made a mistake on, on how I've interpreted scripture, I absolutely encourage you to rebuke me or to show any mistakes. I'm open for that because what? The integrity of the Bible is more important to me than my own ego. But I just want you to understand something. We as Christ followers, we are living in the revised Roman Empire. We are living in a world where they may not be participating in the atrocities of how the Romans did, but we are in equally tumultuous times in that regards. And many of us have adopted language or perceptions or worldviews that, again, as I can encourage you as much as possible, just are not biblical. I have... I have machine gunned you with uh, so much information this morning because I didn't want you to hear the same way of approaching this topic. Instead, I've tried to help you understand the biblical perspective and the boundaries that Paul gives to us to make sure we understand how to apply this. Christ came to redeem us and redeem every aspect of us. And my hope and my prayer for each of you is that if there is a misalignment, that you would realign yourselves with what God would have for us. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you that it's not written in ignorance. It's not written from far off. But instead, Lord, you know the human condition. You know what we're dealing with now, and you know what we'll be dealing with in 50 years from now, which I don't even want to think of. But Lord, the Bible is as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. And I just pray we, your disciples, would commit ourselves to an authentic, truthful understanding of what God intends for each of us. Lord, I know that we fall and we fail, and I thank you for 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't want to lay this ethic out there to anybody without realizing that in our failures, and there's so many of them, God still redeems us by the cross when we ask for it. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts and fill our minds so that we may 
model the values of the kingdom to a world that desperately needs to hear it. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.